0: Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. And I'm your host, Steven Peinecker. And look, folks, it's the man, the myth, the legend. Radio Free Mormon is in the house. How are you doing today, sir?
1: I am fine, thank you. How are you, Steve?
0: Oh, fantastic. Uh, is it OK if I call you Steve? You can call me Steve, Steven, whatever. Or you can call me NBR if you want.
1: Because I'll probably goof up your last name. Oh, that's funny, NBR. NBR <laughs> meets RFM. Oh, yeah.
0: Exactly. So yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I just want to thank you so much. Uh, You know, uh, RFM, I've been actually listening to your podcast for a couple of years now. And this is the fascinating thing. I don't listen to podcasts. I actually just watch YouTube channels, but I found myself in Northern Florida at a place I used to stay at during the summer. And I would sit down for dinner and I would tell Alexa, please play Radio Free Mormon. We'd have the song come on and we have this (laughs) booming voice and you have a voice for radio um i have a face and, for radio too exactly i was gonna yeah i i, I was going i was leading you into that one for you uh
1: so but basically yeah, when i see an insult coming i try and beat you to the punch
0: good job see this is gonna work out very well so uh i'm hearing you tell some very compelling stories you're an interesting man and i just found myself just about every night i'd sit down for dinner and i just you know continue listening or listen to the new, newest episode you'd have out and I think that you just, you're, you're an interesting person. And like I said, you know, the purpose of this channel is to, to hear every voice, to listen to every voice within the restoration. And you're an important voice. So I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and tell your story on my program now. So this is really cool, dude. Well,
1: thank you. Every sperm is sacred.
0: That's right. Money Python. Very good. I want okay, to have so every voice on your program.
1: show. Well, you've got me now. So for two years, you've been listening to my
0: podcast. Have you listened to them all? oh no, I can't say i listen to them all. Especially now that I started my own channel, you find out that when you have your own podcast, you don't have time to listen to other people's podcasts, right? That
1: is so true. By the way, that background you have there, the bricks? Yes. I feel like I'm talking to a client.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. I love it. We're going to have fun today. Yes. So uh, yeah, you were a defense attorney for many years, correct? Yes, still am. And, uh, maybe just talk a little bit about, um, you know, you have, you know, it's very fascinating to me because I find that lawyers, you know, can are often make pretty good apologists. And of course, you were a Mormon apologist for a long time. I mean, you've had a fascinating story just off camera where you're talking about your childhood and that incident that happened where you were molested. Um, You know, again, your, your story is very compelling. And I just basically, RFM, I just want you to tell your story. First of all, I guess I want to start with this. Now I'm a Christian and I'm an evangelical. Now I was an atheist for a while too. I just came back into faith a couple of years ago. So I I, I kind of know what it's like to, uh, you know, be an atheist, be an agnostic, but also be a believer, Uh, be a believer, lose it, and then find it again. Um, I just wanted you to talk a little bit, maybe about your faith journey and where you're at with your faith or lack thereof.
1: My faith journey. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting thing. I just spent what part two of from TBM to RFM with John DeLynn last week. Mm -hmm. And it's for a total of like eight hours with part one to try and talk about that because it is kind of complicated. So I'd refer listeners to that. But if you're asking where I am now, yeah, let's do that. I'm agnostic on the issue of God. Mm-hmm. And I do believe quite firmly that if there is a God, he, she, or it is unlike anything mm-hmm. that we think him to be. I'll just stick with the him. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that. As a matter of fact, when I was on Mormon Stories, I made a similar observation that once you try to describe God, you're going to make him small. Um, there's, it's beyond our comprehension, is, is, is our understanding of God. So even within Christian theology, within the Trinity, that's, that's an inadequate description of God as well. So I think that there is something to that. Now, are you, I guess I want to ask you now, you obviously you're agnostic. Uh, would you consider yourself a spiritual person?
1: Yes, very much so.
0: And so what do you derive from being spiritual, but agnostic? What does that look like?
1: What it looks like to me is that uh, mainly through my uh, familiarity and reading of, in the past 15 years or so, literature in addition to the Bible or the scriptures, I have found a source of spirituality from great literature as it relates to the human experience, and it helps create a depth of feeling in me, and as I read it, I feel that I become more of a person more fully rounded, rounded in places that I didn't know that I was missing before. Does that make any sense at all? Because I know that sounds a little bit untethered from anything factual, but that's the best way that I can describe it.
0: Hmm. No, I think that's interesting. I mean, of course, I went through this faith journey where I lost my faith, and then a couple of years ago, I had kind of a kind of an epiphany of sorts about two years ago, right when COVID started. And I had this, uh, I don't know, I used to be real, uh, suffered from depression, high anxiety, and all that just melted away. And I didn't even realize it at the time until COVID hit and everybody else was freaking out. And I was having this peace that's the path of all understanding. And that kind of put me back on track because I'm like, well, theologically, I should be the one panicking and the Christians should be the ones that are fine. And it was the opposite. So I kind of recognized that something happened to me spiritually and it's hard to explain it, you know. What I'm saying so. Like when you when we're dealing with spiritual stuff, sometimes I don't even want to explain it. I just know that I have this inner peace that I didn't have before, and in my context, I look at it and saying, "Well, that's that's God, that's Jesus." You know, for me, it's become that, and um, and and so I've had a real close walk with God um, as a result. So I'm just trying to figure out um, for you. You, you say you're a spiritual person and you're agnostic. Now, like when I was I was watching your conversation you had with Randy Bell yesterday on Mormon Stories, and, you know, you're he's like an agnostic theist, right? Um, and you would say you're a um, agno, an agnostic non-theist. Would that be a uh, good description? No, no. I, I'm an agnostic Mormon. Oh, I love it. Agnostic Mormon. So would you say culturally you're still a Mormon then?
1: Yes, very much so.
0: And what does that look like? What kind of values do you have as an agnostic Mormon?
1: Well, the funny thing is that I would not have predicted it, but as I untethered myself from what I would consider to be a man-made code of conduct, which was enforced through general authorities, and then compliance with which was required, with exactness, by the way, that's an important word in Mormonism, with exactness to follow this code, Because if you do that, then hopefully you'll get eternal rewards in the celestial kingdom. And if you don't, then you're gonna go somewhere less and be without your family forever. So once those, the carrot and the stick of following the commandments was taken away, what I found was that I had a much deeper well of internal integrity and my own code, which is actually more stringent on myself than that code and more authentic to myself.
0: Wow, that's interesting. And uh, do you pray?
1: No, I do not pray in terms of getting on my knees and praying dear heavenly father, et cetera, et cetera. I prayed enough during my life and I will tell you that it was always very ritualistic. And by that, I mean, in a bad way, by that I mean simply rehearsing lines and trying desperately because you know, we're supposed to avoid the vain repetitions, right? in our prayers. Oh, I got to tell you the story. It's a great story about vain repetitions. But let me finish that point for a second. Um, And so that's all it was. You know, it was a duty. You get down, you pray, maybe you listen, and you try not to say exactly the same words that you said the night before. But after a while, there's only so so many variations you can do on a theme. And you go into these repetitions and it's really, it was quite meaningless to me. All my prayers, I can't remember having a single, significant spiritual experience while I was praying. Now, while I was pondering and thinking about things, then I did have significant experiences, but not while I was actively in the process of praying. So now the story, you ready for the story? Absolutely. Vain repetitions. This is Elder Nackus, N-A-C-K-O-S. This is in Japan. This is in the spring of 1981, because that's when we were in the same apartment. We were not missionary companions. I was the district leader in Sakai, which is a suburb of Osaka. Anyway, by the way, district leader, what that means is there's four missionaries in the apartment, and I'm the senior leader of one of the missionary pairs, but I'm the one who has the responsibility of paying the bills for the apartment and phoning in at the end of every month, the stats to the zone leaders. So that was the extent and the glory of being a district leader back when I was on my mission anyway. So every night we have a meal and missionaries prepare it and they, they take turns preparing it. And obviously somebody has to say the blessing. So this night, Elder Nackus, and Elder Nackus, he's a fun, fun guy. I really, really liked him. I wish we had been companions at some point, but we were not. But super nice guy. And he always had this thing that he always said. He would always say, please bless Elder X, whoever had prepared the meal, right? Please bless Elder X for his efforts in preparing the meal. And this was something he said every single time that he prayed. So one night, we're sitting there around the table, ready to eat, and... Elder Nackus is giving the prayer, and I can't remember who prepared the meal, but he's going through his litany, and we all have our heads bowed. We're listening to Elder Nackus, and he goes, and please bless elder efforts, and elder. then he stops, and we're all waiting, and we can sense that he's trying not to laugh, and then we're trying not to laugh, and then we all break up, and we're all laughing at the table because he goes, please bless elder efforts. In other words, this, uh, this vain repetition, this repetition ended up biting him and it was funny. So, um, he couldn't finish the prayer and we couldn't eat the food until the prayer was said and amen was said. Finally, I was the only one who could pull myself together enough to give a quick ending and an amen on that. So I remember that that's a, it's, that's my story about repetitions in prayer.
0: You know, uh, that's a great story. Uh, I want to go back to something you had said. You had said that you you didn't have spiritual experiences while praying, but you would have spiritual experiencing while pondering things. Uh, Describe that to me.
1: Well, what it is, is when I think and I ponder things, frequently ideas will come. And that's just the way I am. And uh, it's probably not that unusual. Usually ideas come when people are thinking about things, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the way I am. I remember, and this is a story I haven't told. It's a very small story, but it significant to me. When I was in a Sunday school class at the University of Texas at Austin, the student ward, and an individual is up there, he's giving the lesson from the manual. And the lesson from the manual is about Nephi, It's the Book of Mormon, obviously, and about his vision of the tree of life. And the teacher, by the way, by this point already, so this is the 1980s and probably the first half of the 1980s. By this point, I've already already recognized this idea about myself that I don't get, I don't seem to get answers while I'm praying, but I do get them at other times. So I can't say if the prayers have anything to do with it. I can't say they have nothing to do with it. All I know is it doesn't happen while I'm praying, it's while I'm pondering. So the story has to do with the scriptural account and the teacher is up there teaching that nephi got this vision in answer to prayer okay and that was very important for the manual to say for whatever reason because it's a church teaching well i was already familiar enough with this passage in the book of mormon to know that that's not what it says It doesn't say Nephi was praying and he got the vision. It says Nephi was pondering Mm -hmm. and he got the vision. And I knew that because it spoke to me. So I was aware of that before I came to the class. So the teachers up there from the manual saying Nephi prayed, got the vision. I raised my hand and I said, well, actually, if you look at it, he wasn't praying. He was pondering when he got the vision. And the answer was just a very curt. Well, it's implied and then moved on with the lesson. So That was something where a passage that spoke to me because it reflected my own experience of pondering and receiving, um, I'll say spiritual confirmations or uh, information or just inspiration, whatever you wanna call it, ended up being sort of trampled on in favor of the dominant theory or the correlated doctrine of the church.
0: Wow. And that's, that's very interesting because I think so often within a religious context, you know, I know what it's like to be in a spiritually abusive situations where you're supposed to follow the party line and don't question authority. And I like the idea of pondering as a type of inner reflection, a type of meditation, but also like, for instance, you know, uh, I, when I was on Mormon Stories, you know, John Dillon, finally at the very towards the end of our final interview we're having this kind of spiritual experience in the room while it's happening mm-hmm. and he bas- and, and, and basically says I have to admit that I did hear a voice tell me to start a podcast in 2005 and uh, that's just fascinating to me that sometimes there are things where even though're we're, we're just taking a naturalistic worldview that sometimes there are things that happen that maybe, aren't explainable did you ever have an instance like that that just it still makes you kind of think like what happened there oh many give me an example
1: well i have um an example okay i here's the deal with me is that i had a number of very significant spiritual experiences upon joining the church and in the years after joining the church they were extremely profound to me they are experiences that i am not able to rationalize to myself as something that I generated within myself. And so maybe some of them are, I don't know, but certainly not all of them. So I have to account for them in some other way to make sense of them rather than just saying, oh, well, that was elevated emotion because whereas other people I think in the church may never have a spiritual experience or a witness of the Book of Mormon, and they may rely on others. um, I was blessed which may end up being a curse to have these strong spiritual experiences in my youth. And the only reason I say blessed and maybe a curse is because I sometimes wonder that those spiritual experiences that I had, which were so strong and foundational to me, may and probably did keep me a member of the LDS church for much longer than I would otherwise have been without them.
0: Do you still, since le- since you have kind of mentally checked out? Of-
1: graduated. I've graduated from sixth grade, baby.
0: Have you had similar spiritual experiences since then?
1: I wouldn't say similar. I would say different. Okay. And so, um, no, I mean, I heard, I've heard voices too. And that sounds really weird, but it's only on one occasion. It was on my mission. It was very limited and very specific to direct me to a particular individual in a crowd to ask about if they wanted to hear a story about Joseph Smith. Okay, so that's one thing, but um, okay, let me just go ahead and tell the story. I'm sorry, I keep your thinking in my head. So what have I told before? and what's going to be repetitive. So let me stop doing that, all right? Uh, When it came to the Book of Mormon, I had this most amazing experience with the Book of Mormon when I was either 18 or 19. And I remember going to the bishop because my best friend, Bruce, who had baptized me, was getting his patriarchal blessing. And he's telling me what a patriarchal blessing is. That's amazing. Wow, really? Patriarch lays his hands on your head, gives you a blessing outline of your life, all this stuff? I want one of those. Of course, I had only joined the church when I was 18. So, I didn't get it earlier. I'm going to leave on my mission when I'm 19. So, I've got to move fast. And I go to the bishop, Bishop Murphy, and I say, Hey, Bishop, I'd like to get a patriarchal blessing. He says, Okay, well, let me ask you a few questions. It must have been very early on because I was pretty ignorant at the time, which will be reflected in my answer to the bishop's first question, which was Can you just tell me the names of the four standard works? And I start off with Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, and then I start going in my head, oh, shoot, that's going to be five. How can there be five standard works when there's four standard works? Because I'd already split up the Bible into Old and New Testament. That was the mistake I made, right? So what happens is I stop, and I'm looking up like this, and the bishop figures, okay, this guy really doesn't know anything. So he says, have you read the Book of Mormon? I said, no, I haven't. He says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read the Book of Mormon, and then come back, and we'll talk about your patriarchal blessing." Good move on his part to give me a, uh, a reason to read the Book of Mormon. So what I do is I go home every night after work and I spend at least an hour reading the Book of Mormon every night. And I remembered what the missionary who taught me, that was Elder Timothy Shanson, who taught me as a missionary and converted me. He said, when you read the Book of Mormon, what you should do is you should pray before you read to know whether this is God's word. In other words, Moroni's promise. But on top of that, he says, whenever you read, you should have this question in the back of your mind. Could any man have written this? So that's what I tried to do. Every night I would get home from work. I'd get ready for bed. I would kneel down by the side of my bed. I would pray to ask God, please let me know by the power of the Holy Ghost that this book is true. And keep that question in the back of my mind. Could any man have written this book? So I start reading the Book of Mormon. And I read my way all the way through it in the process of, I don't know, a couple of months. But I was quite diligent about it. Basically every evening for an hour. And I had the most amazing experience as I read the Book of Mormon. I've never had an experience like it before or since. So let me describe this experience to you. As I'm reading... You know, um, if you stop and you think about it, we go through our life, there are 360 degrees here around us or four sides, right? And really, all we see is one side. We've got peripheral vision out here, but really in focus, all we have is this area in the front. We can turn our heads, but then of course, the box changes and now we can't see over here. What this was like was as I'm reading, It's like the walls of my mind fell down and I could see to infinity in all directions at once. Hmm. Closest I can describe it. Now I didn't see anything out there, but it was this impression of being able to see to infinity in all directions at once. And the amazing thing is that didn't happen once or twice. That happened every single time I read from the Book of Mormon. And by the time I got to the end, I was struck with the impression that it's a pretty complicated book and there's a lot of stories and a lot of characters and a lot of preaching. And I thought, you know, I can't tell you very much about what happens in the Book of Mormon at this point. All I can say is that I know by the power of the Holy Ghost that every word in it is the word of God. Hmm. Wow. And um, You feeling the spirit now, Steve?
0: (laughs) You know, I want to know, now that you are post-Mormon, you've graduated, what do you think of that experience you have? How do you explain it now?
1: Well, I actually did give that a lot of thought. And back in January of 2020, right before COVID hit, I was down invited to St. George to present at their uh, post-Mormon community. And this is what I decided to speak on because it is a question that arises with some frequency, which is what do you do with those spiritual experiences that you've had? Because a lot of people have had spiritual experiences. There's quite a few who have difficulty thinking that this was something that they made up, right? And so I tried to do um, a thoughtful presentation on the subject and it is up at Radio Free Mormon. And um, I'm not sure I remember everything that I said in it, but basically the idea is this, I had to come to the point where I realized that my spiritual experiences are my spiritual experiences and they are not given to me by another person or another organization either they come from outside me or they come from inside me I can't tell you for sure which but I know they don't come from another person right and I certainly was following along with the typical LDS approach which is the church tells you that you will have spiritual experiences in many cases the church assumes that you have had spiritual experiences and then the church will interpret your spiritual experiences for you or they will tell you how to interpret the spiritual experience and the bottom line is as you know any spiritual experience that any Mormon has means the church is true And early on, I had some strange experiences. I say strange because I had spiritual experiences outside the context of Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have a spiritual experience reading the Book of Mormon, that seems to be pretty Mormon specific, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. But let me talk about the Book of Mormon for a second. Then I'll go to those other spiritual experiences. The thing with the Book of Mormon is that I came to understand that just because something is being testified to me as truth when I'm 19 or 18, doesn't mean that there can't be more truth to be added upon that later on in life. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we take it, that I take, I'll just make it all about me. So I'm not speaking for anyone else. To the extent that I take a spiritual experience and say that cements the truth right there. And now that's the truth. And I'm going to live my whole life based upon that one experience. What I've done is I've limited myself in my understanding to what it is that I had an experience was true when I was a teenager talking about the other things. There were two main experiences that I had when I felt the spirit just as strongly as I had at any other time. And so this is the early eighties. I'm back from my mission. And one of the things was that I'm reading, Oh, this is its own story. And I won't tell you about it, but because of a strange, uh, circumstance that happened I ended up having to take a test in college based upon reading oh I don't know like 20 pieces of literature and I had to read them like in 10 days whatever it was uh, obviously the fault was mine but this ended up becoming my problem I had to read all this stuff and then take this final exam which I passed I'm happy to say but one of the things I had to read in this time period was letter from a or letter from a Birmingham jail by martin luther king jr and i was already predisposed to not like mlk Hmm. because i had also been reading the works of ezra taft benson and he had his book what uh, an enemy hath done this Hmm. do you ever read that one
0: no i'm aware of it and i've had matt harris on so we talked about it
1: This is the point where I'm trying to one up you, because I know that you've read all the stuff in Mormonism, but I haven't. So I've read that one anyway. So, of course, he talked uh, Ezra Taft Benson as an apostle. And he's talking about MLK in very derogatory terms, communist sympathizer, all those kinds of things. So I'm already predisposed to not really think much of what I'm going to read in this letter from a Birmingham jail. So I'm reading it and I'm reading it and I'm reading it, you know, as fast as I can, because I got all these other things I have to read. So there's all these things against. This particular piece of literature but i'm reading it and as i'm reading it i am shocked to find that i'm feeling the spirit Mm. as i read this letter and it was as strong as anything else i've experienced but i did not know what to do with it yeah if i have an experience reading the book of mormon i know what to do with that as a mormon it means the church is true the book of mormon is true if I have an experience with a letter from the Birmingham Jail, what the hell do I do with that?
0: Right.
1: So I thought, well, it's pro- it's the principles that he's enunciating of uh, freedom and mm-hmm. uh, you know racial respect, those kinds of things. So I could separate it from the man and just think, okay, well, it's just the principles that he's talking about.
0: So this is the thing. So here you are, you're reading this letter from Martin Luther King, and you feel the spirit and you're trying and of course you're going through the lens of Ezra Taft Benson and his worldview about Martin Luther King and yet you're reading this and you're experiencing something spiritual and you said of course it was the principles that was within the letter that you thought you were trying to justify why you're feeling this way just continue with the story I find it to be very fascinating
1: well that was so unexpected which is why I took the time to talk about Ezra Taft Benson right Because if there's anybody that I'm expecting to write something that I'm going to have some sort of spiritual experience reading, it's not going to be Martin Luther King Jr. So I have to go to principles. But then there was another thing that was even more inexplicable to me as far as spiritual experiences go. And that has to do with modern dance. I don't know how much you know about modern dance. But I started before my mission for three years doing tap jazz and ballet, which is your were my three basic food groups. But then you get to college and you, I had to start doing modern dance. And I did not appreciate modern dance very much. Um, I just didn't get it. It seemed kind of strange and sometimes silly to me. But one of the assignments we had for dance history or dance class, whatever it was, to go attend a performance of the South Carolina, I believe it was, Modern dance company that was coming through Austin doing performances, right? So I had to go to that to write a review as an assignment. Well, this is a wasted evening for me because it's modern dance. And I go there and I watch this thing and they're up there on the stage and they're doing their stuff and it's interpretive and whatever. And I'm not really tracking what they're doing if one can really track what's happening in modern dance. But all of a sudden I'm sitting there in this auditorium and I start feeling the spirit. And I really have no idea now because it's not something where I can even say, well, I'm reading certain principles by somebody. And the principles are what are making me feel the spirit. Like with the letter from a Birmingham jail, there's no principles up there. They're just dancing. And I don't even like modern dance. So that really made it difficult. So then I tried to think, okay, well, maybe it's beauty. That the Holy Ghost is testifying to me. So there's all these things that I do to try and understand why it is I'm having spiritual experiences that are outside the context of Mormonism in order to make it still match Mormonism. But those are things that happen where in retrospect I start saying, "Wait, I am having spiritual experiences that are my spiritual experiences, but I'm trying to focus them all through Mormonism because I'm told that that's what a good Mormon does. But after uh, developing, maturing some, and I'm talking about decades, believe me, uh, it's a lot of maturation that's required for me and still a long way to go. Then I start looking back and going, wait a second, these are my spiritual experiences. I get to interpret them. And usually now my interpretation is to try not to interpret them, to simply recount them like I've been doing. You notice I haven't put any interpretation except when I said that what I said after I finished reading the Book of Mormon was that every word was the word of God. I would not say that now in recounting the experience because that was an interpretation. And it's one that I don't necessarily agree with. Maybe it was, but this is I wanna tell you this story too, cause I haven't told this story before. Even while these things are happening, I'm having these other wonderful spiritual experiences in the church and some of them have to do with missionary work. After I get back from my mission, good Mormon, I was a missionary, I was a ward missionary. I think we called them stake missionaries back then. I was even at one point the ward mission leader, wow, in the student ward. And there was a point at which I was teaching this young lady and I mean, she was probably about my age but it was in my apartment. I don't know if we are in splits with the missionaries, but basically what I remember is this. She's sitting there. She's a Hispanic, just a tiny little thing, very sincere. She was the girlfriend of a member and that's why she's taking the discussions. It'll frequently happen that way, but I'm talking to her and as I'm teaching her one of the lessons, the missionary lessons, all of a sudden, this incredible thing happens. And what happens is this. Have you ever been in a room, uh, a big room with a huge turbine generator, like at a power plant?
0: Oh, no, no, I haven't. I haven't. No. Okay.
1: Neither have I, but I've imagined, (laughs) (laughs) but I've imagined such a thing. I've seen them. Right. And just this huge thrumming of power as these huge turbines go around so quickly. And It was like there was a turbine in the adjacent room behind me, and this room that I was in was just filled with thrumming power, and so I recognized that, or believed I recognized it at the time as a good missionary, as the spirit being present, and so I said, I'm feeling the spirit here. I'm expecting you are too. She nods her head. So that's my cue as a missionary, since the spirit's there, to start testifying to the truth of anything and everything I can come up with related to Mormonism, right? Mm. So that was a a remarkable experience. That one has only happened once like that before. And she ended up getting baptized, and then her boyfriend kind of dumped her, and I think she went somewhere else, Mm. unfortunately. But that's the story. So... Talking about my spiritual experiences that tied me originally to Mormonism, Uh, I look at this now in retrospect, sort of like the story about the, uh, the guy who crosses the river on the raft. And I think this is a story from Buddhism. A lot of stories from Buddhism are too deep for me. I don't get them. This one really resonates with me because of my experience. And this is the person who's making the trek. He's going across the country. You know the story, don't you, Steve? I'm not in your head. It sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, so he he comes to this river and he's got to get, get across the river. He can't swim across the river. It just won't work. It's too big, too wide, too turbulent. He builds a raft. And so he builds this raft. He floats across the river. Everything's fine. But now he drags the raft with him because he doesn't know when he's going to come to another river. And this raft is going to be necessary if he comes to another river like the one he crossed. Well, he keeps carrying and dragging this raft with him across the plains. And now, and I envision this in the United States, so I'm sure that's not what the original terrain, right? Going across the rivers and then heading west across the plain states, and then getting to the Rocky Mountains and starting to climb up the mountains, still holding on to this raft. And at some point, the raft ends up becoming an impediment to progress. And you can't keep going further up the mountains while you're dragging this huge wooden raft behind you. And so at some point, this traveler has to realize that this raft, even though it was critical in the person's journey to get across the river way back there, it is now an impediment. The same raft that allowed the crossing of the river is an impediment to continue on. And it has to be left behind. And that's one of the ways I look at those earlier spiritual experiences, not that they were meaningless, they were incredibly meaningful. But they took me this far, this far in my journey. But to continue to allow them to dictate the rest of my life would be like dragging them as a raft, trying to climb up mountains. And they would have kept me from climbing up mountains, actually. Assuming I'm up mountains, I know that sounds very egotistical. (laughs) But I'm doing my best. Yeah, And I have to cut ties with the raft in order to keep climbing.
0: That's that's a great, great illustration. You know, and actually I want to I go back in time a little bit because now I've, like I said, I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years, but maybe as you're telling the story, it'll, uh, I'll remember, it will jog my memory, but I didn't realize that you actually were a convert at the age of 18 to the church. So I, I got to ask you a few questions about um, your background. So were you raised in a Christian church uh, no. before your conversion? And then tell us about what led you into the, into the LDS faith.
1: I was not raised in any kind of religious faith. My father was an avowed atheist. He didn't make a big deal about it, but we knew that he was an atheist. He did not believe in God. Uh, my dad actually was a rocket scientist. So he's very much into um, engineering and aeronautical engineering, ultimately, as it turned out. So, And I've got a story to tell about him that I think applies to you as well. But hang on a second, let me make a note. So hopefully I can come back to that.
0: Yeah, please do. Okay.
1: So that's my dad. My mom was a she had been raised a Baptist, I'm sure, in Abilene, Texas. I mean, do they have anything else in Abilene? So it's probably a Baptist. But uh, that was her upbringing. And she stopped going to the Baptist church when she became upset about the pastor talking about politics, I think, in church. And I also think that there was a little too much fire and brimstone in his sermons for her liking. So she became disaffected, disaffiliated, but she still had a generic belief in Christianity, a generic belief in the Bible, but I was never taken to church or anything like that. There was one exception to that, but that's really not that important. It was on an Easter Sunday in 1968. So, by the way, I've lived in a lot of different places because my folks have moved and that will happen. But um, sometimes I'm able to go Easter of 1968 because there was only one place where we lived in Easter of 1968. Got it. Longview, Texas in these apartments. Right. So I can associate events with places and then I can put the places in the timeline in my head. All right, so having said all of that, that's my mom, that's my dad. And I started having an interest in religion, in the Bible, almost on my own, almost undirected. And I remember that I thought the Bible was uh, an important book. Of course, that's our culture, right? It's a very important book, if not the most important book. And so I remember at an early age, maybe 12, maybe 11, thinking I should read something from the Bible. I also had a friend of mine who was active in his church. I don't know if it was Seventh-day Adventist or what, but he would go to church and he'd come back and have all these stories and it sounded kind of exciting. So I looked through the Bible and I tried to find the shortest book I could and I landed on Ruth. All right, now there are shorter books, but they have these very strange names Like, I don't know, Corinthians isn't that short a book, either first or second, but Thessalonians, right? First, those are short, but that just sounds really, really off-putting. What the hell is a Thessalonian? So I went with Ruth. That sounded nice. That sounded warm. And I read it and I had no freaking clue what it was talking about. I had no idea what this story was about. I'm 12 or 11 trying to read the book of Ruth with nobody to help me understand. And so I quickly came to the conclusion that if the shortest book in the Bible named Ruth was going to be this confusing to me, I really had no hope in understanding anything else in the Bible. So I put it to the side, but I did memorize little bits and snippets of Bible verses, but not from the Bible, from Peanuts. Yeah. And that's Peanuts with a mm-hmm. T-S. The, um, the, the cartoon, right, with Charlie Brown. And you remember that Schroeder would frequently... Or not frequently. Sometimes, quote from the Bible Mm -hmm. in there, and uh, of course, he also quoted from the Bible at the end of um, what Charlie Brown
0: Christmas. Christmas, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And I had taped that on my little tape recorder, you know, the cassette tape, and played it back and back and back. And I had memorized that little speech, which is of course an abbreviated form of the Nativity from Luke, I believe. mm -hmm. So. Uh, but he'd also say other things, uh, like there's one time when, I don't know, it's supposed to be funny in the comic strip, but he's talking about uh, when you're, okay, when you are invited to your feet, when you're invited to a feast, don't take the chief seats, but wait until they say, friend, go up higher, then thou shalt be honored in the presence of all who are at the table, right? And I'm talking to my mom one day, and I don't know what we're talking about, but she's got this little 12-year-old boy who all of a sudden now, in the context of what we're talking about, spits out this quote from the Bible. And I, I'm sure I was doing it just to show off. But she looks at me like Mary must have looked at Jesus often and thought, <laughs> <laughs> no, she looked at me like, who is this kid? And said, we've got to get you to church. Mm. But she never did. Mm. So I'm not sure you're, you were talking about my, my upbringing, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. So that's really it. There isn't that much. I mean, I dabbled with Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. Or they dabbled with me. Yeah. Because they come by every now and again, and they have their book, the big book at the time, you know, they have their different colored books, right? And they're small, and they're hardback, and they're chock full of doctrinal goodness. And the one that they would always promote was the, the blue one, the darker blue one, which was titled "The Truth That Leads to Everlasting Life," that was their big one for investigators, and I got a hold of that. Once again, I was probably probably twelve. It's a formative time for me, and I read through it, and I just thought, "Oh my gosh!" This was during the summer we were living in Rockport, Texas. That's its old story. Some people have already heard it. My parents are split up for the summer. I'm there with my mom and one of my brothers. My dad's back in Washington with the oldest brother. Miserable summer. Horrible summer. At the time, it was the worst summer of my life. And I wish it had remained the worst summer of my life. But there were worse summers to come. Hmm. But I got a hold of this book. And I'm reading it because I got nothing to do. I got no friends. I got no place to go. I don't know anyone. And I'm reading this book. And I remember... Being struck so to the soul by the admonition in the book that anything having to do with numerology or, I don't know, palmistry or anything like that was a cult in nature and should be destroyed. Like burning, right? Mm-hmm. And I had picked up this little book at the grocery store. They had these little books in the checkout line. And I got my mom to get me this little booklet. And I think it was on numerology. I was interested in that stuff as well, as well as magic, stage magic, performing magic, but also these other kinds of areas of knowledge with uh, palmistry and numerology and astrology and all those kinds of things. Not getting into it very deep Um, tarot cards, Um, but I had this little booklet on numerology and I read this book by the J dubs about you should burn these things. And I do believe I did take that out into the backyard and burn it as a sign of my righteousness.
0: Hmm. Hmm. That's really fascinating, dude.
1: Uh, Is it really? It's kind of scary. What's that? kind of scary now that i'm thinking of. yeah
0: it. it is it is but it with but in the young person's mind it, it made sense at the time and you mm-hmm. thought this was something that was evil or wicked and had to be disposed of so it makes sense in that context but i just want to know where uh were there any other interactions that you had with other churches or evangelicals before you started interacting with the lds church
1: i would say largely no There was the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I continued to have more contact with the Jehovah's Witnesses after that because my brother Cam, he's the middle brother. He converted to Jehovah's Witnesses before I joined the LDS church. Not long before, but he did. And I remember he couldn't drive, but he had weekly sessions, study sessions with an elder in the church. I'm sorry, they don't like to be called a church in the Jehovah's Witnesses organization um, over at his house. And so every Saturday morning, because I could drive, it was my job to take him over there and wait for him to go in and have his hour long teaching session to prepare to be baptized. By the way, as you know, Jehovah's Witnesses don't do the six lessons and you're done. They do like a year or a substantial amount of time and a substantial amount of teaching before they baptized somebody as a convert into the Jehovah's Witnesses. So this was a long-term thing. And usually I'd stay out by the car, but you know, there's no cell phones. There's not much to entertain myself with. So every now and again, I would go in with my brother Cam inside and listen to what this individual was saying. And so the, the main thing I remember that happened was, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses do not celebrate Christmas. And I had a question about that. And I asked why they don't celebrate Christmas. And this particular elder, I think it could have been handled better, but he ended up going off on a tirade. Associating Christmas with all the evils in the world. And this was this took quite some time for him to vent about why it is they don't celebrate Christmas. But ultimately the impression I was left with was that he was saying that because of Santa Claus, his daughter could not walk down the street at night without the fear of being raped. Hmm. Because ultimately that's where his his argument came around to. And after that, I decided I really didn't wanna go in anymore and listen to anymore because that seemed extreme to me even when I was a teenager interesting but other than that really no no association well i, I, I just think. had a
0: quick question um you had this would have been in the early 70s late 70s or mid. okay so because you know of course they were talking about the end of the world in 1975 so you would have post that period of Jehovah's witnesses then right? i think so okay now you had mentioned that there's a story that you wanted to tell about your dad do you think jesus is coming back <sighs> i don't think that we are living in the end times personally
1: I think so that when are they going to get here? It's been 2000 years.
0: Well, that's the thing. I think that it's probably a long ways off. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I, I, I was raised in a world where my parents had survival food back in the day. Um, believed that the end of the world was coming. Uh, you know, the, the selling book of the 1970s was the late great planet earth by hell Lindsay. Lindsay. Yeah. I read it. it. Okay. And so this world, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because that, you know, I just remember seeing the survival, old survival food in our garage, you know, mm-hmm. and so I was raised with the expectation that we were living in the last days and that Jesus was going to be returning. I have since moved on from that. Now, I'm not like Sean McCraney, who's Sean McCraney says Jesus returned already in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. Um, that's called preterism. Um, it's a it's a very uh, fringe belief, but it basically, uh, it actually makes the scripture makes more sense if Jesus returned when he said he'd return, basically, in the scriptures. <laughs> we,
1: we don't have to make so many excuses, yeah. but it raises a, a different set of problems, I imagine. Exactly,
0: exactly, yeah. but but I think that, um, I do think that a lot of things that we think are predicted in the future in the book of Revelation actually did happen with the destruction of the temple. I think there's some, there is some uh, grounds to that. I think, uh, Jesus was predicting, that even, even Bart Ehrman will tell you that Jesus. there was this man, the itinerant preacher was going around predicting the destruction of the temple and his name was Yeshua. <laughs> so I think that um, there's something to that. So I think a lot of the apocalyptic language that's used in the New Testament is actually, is actually pointing to the destruction of the temple, God's abode here on earth, which to me is an apocalypse. So within that context, I think that then we can look at the return of Christ as being a little bit different. I think that I, I have these, I, I would say I'm more post-millennial you know, that Christ comes at the very end and that we as humans have to get our act together before he returns in one sense. I guess that's that's my, where I currently stand. But does that make any sense to you?
1: No, absolutely. The reason I started asking you that is because this is one of the things that happened in my thinking a number of years back about Jesus coming again. And I remember that there was a shift that happened in me over time, but I remember the shift to suddenly realizing for myself, the idea that Jesus isn't coming back. I mean, it's been 2000 years. I've lived with this idea. We all know it's been 2000 years. Mm-hmm. If you start studying the subject, you start finding out that every generation of Christians since Jesus Christ died has thought that they were the generation in which Jesus would return, even from the very first generation, right? And so why should we think that after 2000 years, that Jesus is going to come back anytime at all. And that was quite a shift in my thinking. And I started realizing for myself or believing, no, Jesus isn't going to come back. And I start making a joke out of it saying, you know, for Jesus, uh, we need to get him a watch or something because obviously his is broken. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is he waiting for?
0: Yeah,
1: that's the question. And then we start, I think, as human beings, we start trying to make, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm saying make excuses. And I don't mean to be offensive when I say that, but, but coming up with reasons for why it is that Jesus hasn't come back yet. And usually it's always our fault because we're trained within, I think, a Christian paradigm, probably larger than a Christian paradigm, certainly within a Mormon paradigm, that if there's ever anything that's awry or appears to be awry, with the church or theology, it's always our fault.
0: Okay. You know, I want to say one thing because I kind of had a similar thing that you did. So now I I believe the Lord has prompted me or told me things in the past, and I believe actually He's been part of this whole endeavor that I've had with the channel as well. And that is uh, in the 90s, the Lord showed me, or I had an epiphany, or whatever you want to call it. And and I I remember told a few people this. Now you remember this is the 90s. This is pre-millennial right Pre- before the millennium uh the, the, there was a lot of people thought we were living in the end times i mean we had the antichrist in the office that so was bill clinton right and and, and that witch uh, hillary that's the kind of things we were talking about back then you know and so there was this expectation we were living in the end of days in the 90s of course uh hell lindsey's book basically said that jesus would be coming in 1988 so everything was all in that all in that in the air but i just remember having this moment where i said you know what jesus isn't coming back anytime soon and I said, in, in the period of 2020 to 2030, it's going to be, that's the last gasp of dispensationalist, the, the, the dispensationalism, which is a type of world, 19th century idea about the end of the world. Because uh, it's like uh, a
1: generation after yeah. 2000.
0: Yeah, well, because, well, once, 40 years is a biblical generation. So Israel becomes a nation in 1948. Jesus has to come by 1948. Well, then they said, well, well, Jerusalem fell in 1967. You said by 48, did you mean 88? By 88, yeah. Four years after. And then uh, then they upped it to say, well, actually, Jerusalem got into Jewish hands in 1967. So they were able to bump it up to 2007, uh, right? Well, I just had this epiphany where the period of 2020 to 2030 is going to be uh, the period of what I call the second great disappointment. Because by now, we should have been in the second or third uh, decade of the millennium within many of the calendars of what what people are being taught. So I just had this moment of, okay, now Christianity after the year 2030 is going to have to do this made uh, evangelical American Christianity is going to have to do a reassessment about its view of the end of days because they shouldn't be here. I think that's part of the issue that we're having with COVID was all these Christians didn't know how to handle it because American Christians in particular, because they were told, well, when calamities happen and when there's a, a apocalypse or whatever is happening, you're gonna be raptured away. And they weren't raptured away and they didn't. And, and that's why I think a lot of the craziness has entered into evangelicalism because they don't know how to process what's happening because they, the tools that were necessary to cope with tragedy, they was taken away from them because they were told they were gonna fly away i'm sorry that's long-winded but that's kind of my perspective on it
1: okay so what you're saying is that you think that once it becomes really really obvious to even the most devout fundamentalist christian or evangelical christian although i don't know i think that there will still be people who will continue to believe certainly but that the lion's share of them are going to realize that jesus isn't coming that this 48 or 67 plus 40 this year 2000 that it's just not happening so it's going to be a second great disappointment and we're going to have to recalibrate yeah
0: i think that you're going to have a lot of you're going to have people who are going to still think that we're in the end of days till for as long as christianity exists they'll think they're living in the last days i just think that there's going to be a reset or recalibration of how one deals with the end times and prophecy and i think you're going to see people moving in different directions of how they theologically deal with it um, I think that's what's going to happen in the next ten to ten to twenty years. We're going to see a major shift in in the in that mindset. That's just kind of and again, I I I knew look ninety nine percent of the people who were prophets pro- prophets in the '90s were saying we're living in the last days. I uttered a prophecy saying that we would be here in the year 2020. I'm more accurate than ninety nine percent of all the prophets that were around in the '90s in that sense. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm not claiming to be a prophet, but I'm saying that I actually made a prophecy that was more accurate than any what anybody else was saying as well.
1: Well, I will tell you what. Anytime somebody says Jesus is coming back within a certain amount of time and you say, I disagree, you're going to be
0: right. Exactly. Yep. So either way, I think uh, it's just interesting stuff because, of course, you know, uh, American evangelicalism is very much steeped in 19th century uh, Christian uh, worldview. just like, And it's the same spring that Mormonism came out of, Uh, so we have a lot that's relatable, and that's why I always think what I find so interesting is I tell people that there are places where evangelicals and the Restoration can have conversations, and it's at April 6, 1830 church service, where you have a room full of born-again spirit-filled Christians, like I say, them's my people, and then uh, within the pages of the Book of Mormon, which is a very Protestant book, it's a very evangelical book, and these are areas where we could have common dialogue. Now I know as an outsider, you, of course you're agnostic and you're not really, you know. but and I'm a believer, uh, a very nuanced one, but still a believer. Um, I just think it's important that the two b- people that have been going at it, the Christians and the, the evangelicals and the Mormons have been going like this for 200 years. And I'm trying to take another approach, which is civility, finding common ground and having adult conversations. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of that approach?
1: I think it's a great approach, and I want to get back to your approach, but I want to mention that's so interesting about these last days, that Mormonism is steeped in that idea that is essential to its identity. Um, I read somewhere where uh, religious groups will frequently put their single most important doctrine or idea in their name, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? That is huge. We are witnesses of Jehovah and the name of Jehovah. Seventh-day Adventists, what's the most important? Worshiping the Sabbath on the seventh day on Saturday instead of Sunday. And the Mormons are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thank you, President Nelson. We'll use the full name. It's in the name. Latter-day Saints. We are in the last days. And we have been in the last days for going on 200 years now. And so I think probably what's happening with Mormonism is very similar to what happened with Christianity over time when Jesus didn't come, when he was expected, and that things keep getting pushed out. The expectation keeps getting pushed out. And there's um, the thing about first and second Thessalonians. uh, I'm sure you've done some Bible studies, but first Thessalonians is believed by most scholars to have actually been written by Paul. And 2 Thessalonians is not written by Paul. It's written by someone pretending to be Paul. It's a pseudo-Pauline letter. And one of the reasons they think that is because 1 Corinthians, clearly the author there is believing that Jesus is going to come again in the author's lifetime. And then 2 Thessalonians comes along and says, well, hang on a second. It's not going to be that fast. It's actually there's going to have to be this great apostasy that happens first and the man of sin be revealed, right? Sitting in the temple. Uh, And then we'll have the restoration. So it's funny because Mormons know that scripture in second Thessalonians um, because it's a great apostasy scripture. But the way scholars look at it is this is written later. It's showing a development in Christianity to respond to the fact that Jesus did not come again within the generation of the author of the first epistle and so this is a disappointment right so we have to figure out ways to explain why it is that Jesus hasn't come back and I think we see the same thing in Mormonism and now we're about 180 years later and I remember it caused a little bit of a stir in the church when I think it was Boyd K. Packer was giving a general conference talk and he was talking about how members of the church really don't need to be too worried about things that are going on in the world. It's bad. There's horrible things happening, but we have safety here and that we'll be raising our children and our grandchildren. And people were looking at each other and saying, you mean Jesus isn't coming back before we have children and grandchildren. These are young people, obviously. Right. And it's like, I think it was unconscious on his part, I didn't, he wasn't addressing the second coming, but what he did was he effectively said, Jesus isn't coming back for at least a couple more generations. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, continue.
1: On the other hand, president Nelson is beating that second coming drum like nobody's business. And if you paid attention to what he says, he is just saying, Oh, Jesus is going to be coming back any, any day now. And he had his wife, I should say he had his wife. What I should say is his wife, Wendy, spoke back in 2016 in January at their address at Hawaii from BYU Hawaii, the the young adult devotional that was broadcast. So she spoke first and then he spoke. And he was Elder Nelson at the time. He wasn't the president of the church yet. But what he said got all the attention because that's where he called the 2015 November Leaked policy a revelation so he got all the attention there but what his wife Wendy said before that I thought deserved its own attention I've given it some attention before here's what she says at the end of her talk what she says is imagine he says no no she didn't say imagine she says what would you do if you knew that the Savior as part of his second coming has already met with large groups of his most devoted followers to give them instructions, meetings about which CNN and the media and the internet know nothing about. What would you be willing to change? What would you be desperate to change if you knew those things? And she was doing it in such a way that it was very obvious to me what she was doing. What she's trying to do is she's trying to signal, encode, that this is all happening and who would be better to know, but the wife of elder Nelson. So she's portraying this insider knowledge, but still couching it in such a way with the if language that if she ever got called on it, that she could say, oh, well, I was just saying if, but she was saying a lot more than if you can say if, but when you start giving all those details as if you're relating something that really happened, then you're going beyond just a hypothetical and I, my take on what she said was she's signaling that this really is happening and she knows about it. And that second coming is so close. It's already in the works. And Jesus has been showing up here in meetings with obviously the apostles, who else would Jesus show up to? Right? So, um, that's, this is the, um, the Jesus is coming again, drum that is being beat even now in the LDS church, like, um. Uh, well, like, I've never heard it before, maybe. Hmm. Hmm. In some sense, I think Elder Nelson thinks he is the second coming. Well, I'll, ju- I'll just let that one hang out there. For yeah, a I,
0: I was like, I don't know how to respond to that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I wanted to uh, ask you some questions. And and I'm actually, I, I want to kind of move along to uh your podcast, a little bit about the history of that. But was there anything you wanted to cover before we moved on from to move to a different conversation?
1: No, uh, I will say this one thing. I always say no, and then I add something, right? So it had been said a long time ago by some scholars of Mormonism that if you look at Mormonism and its development, what you can see happening in real time, or at least closer to 2000 years ago with Christ- Christianity, you can get an idea as to what was going on with Christianity at its earlier stages. And I thought that was uh, brilliant. I thought it was insightful. I don't don't know it's completely true, but I think there's some truth to it. And so I would look at that and think, yeah, that's true, this development, this stuff going on. But unfortunately, over time, as I learned more about Mormonism and more about Christianity, I started seeing that as not necessarily a faith-promoting thing. That what was happening with Mormonism, not faith-promoting, looking at Christianity, perhaps seeing similarities and finding those not necessarily faith-promoting either.
0: Absolutely. I think that the Mormonism is a challenge to a conventional Christianity and how Christians um, have to be more, I think, more humble in their approach when they're dealing with other groups. Because when I look at a lot of the parallels between the early days of the Latter-day Saints and there are many of the apologetic arguments that Christians can make about the resurrection Mormons can make about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. If anything, there's more evidence that the plates were tangible and real in one sense, because we actually have written statements from people than the tangibility of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think that that's something that Christians have to take into account. And I do, and I do, I do think that Christians need to do that. And I think then they'll be more humble in their approach, and maybe a little more gracious towards Latter-day Saints in their, uh, in their dealings with them.
1: So do you think the Book of Mormon is inspired?
0: I think that there's inspiring things in the Book of Mormon. And partly I say that is, for instance, my friend um, Jonathan Neville wrote the book, um, Infinite Goodness, Joseph Smith, Jonathan Edwards, and the Book of Mormon. And it talks about the outsized influence that Jonathan Edwards had on the production of the Book of Mormon. Now, Jonathan is an Orthodox TBM. But he's a very unique, interesting fellow, and uh, hes I, I just kind of embrace the areas where the Book of Mormon speaks to me, and it's also um, and where where I can find agreement with it. And the other thing that John Hamer, when I've been doing a series of interviews with John Hamer, and one—and he brought up one thing. He said Protestants, evangelicals in particular, should be grateful for the Book of Mormon because it has, if you transcriptions of nineteenth-century revival sermons in the book so it's actually a an important document that's actually part of our history as well does that make any sense to you absolutely yep so i don't i tell christians don't don't be afraid of the book of mormon it's a thoroughly christian book
1: and then maybe a little too christian
0: yeah (laughs) yeah because it yeah yeah christians christian churches before jesus even arrives in the scene right? right so but I just say, like, just put this put put the Book of Mormon and just look, look if you engage the text of the Book of Mormon. I think many Christians, if they read it, would be saying, Amen. So why in the world? And I can tell people, the Book of Mormon confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, okay. Let's just let's just let's just use the Book of Mormon as a as a as a bridge that we can have conversations with. That's that's my approach to the Book of Mormon.
1: So if Joseph Smith was on the right track with the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. then what happened to him? Because I'm guessing you thought you don't think that he stayed on the right track up through June 27th of
0: 1844? So, you know, it's really fascinating to me because I'm very, very good friends with uh, the Church of Jesus Christ and they are based in Naga Hill, Pennsylvania. And they are, an, I call it an April 6th, 1830 church. And when I go in that church and I uh, uh, worship with them and fellowship with them, I am engaging, definitely no doubt about it, Christians. Uh, I, I actually, I've, I brought Christians to some of their services. They felt the same way. I got a guy from Arizona who contacted me who attended a service, a Christian, and was blown away by it. So I feel like the the, the church, the April 6, 1830, it was a Christian church, okay? Now I look at, and I, I've given this uh, this observation before, and I think I talked about it in Mormon Stories, is that if you look at the history of the, the church, um, of the, in the restoration, everything like that. So you, it's almost like in miniature the history of Christianity. Like I tell people, I said if I read Christian history, I can get I can get into the first, maybe the second century, maybe the third, fourth centuries, and find it recognizable. But as I get further and further away, the church becomes unrecognizable to me, mm-hmm. and and that would be the Catholic Church, what would become the Catholic Church, and it's like I it doesn't seem so foreign to me based on what the first century church is. So I almost feel like in miniature, you have a similar thing happening from the period 1830, to 1844, that the church that existed in 1844 is unrecognizable to the one that was existed in 1830. Make sense to you?
1: Yeah, but that's a remarkably compressed period of time, 14 yeah, years people, versus centuries.
0: Yeah, you could, yeah, it is it is remarkable, but it's all compressed, real real tight compression there, and it's really fascinating to me. Um I just think that when I look at it, I look at there's parallels in my, in you know, I tell people, I said, you know, when I look at my charismatic tradition and i mean i i got job offers from televangelists so i mean i i I know how the sausage is made okay um so you have jim baker built a city all right uh oral roberts saw a 200 foot jesus all right That's a big jesus that is a big jesus um kenneth copeland tells us that you can become a god um did he say that yes i actually absolutely. know
1: all these people not yeah. personally
0: and uh, and then benny Hinn said that there are multiple members of the trinity almost a plurality of gods so mm-hmm. i look at my tradition and i can find parallels mm-hmm. to a lot of what joseph smith did but not only that then i tell people and then we have baptism of the dead which the apostle paul gave us right so <laughs> so we have all these things where i can find parallels within my movement of joseph smith but i also see in, in many of the cases these many times start humble and they build these empires and then they fall. And so I, I, I just, to me, it's like the story of Joseph Smith to me is very relatable. Mm -hmm. So no offense to you who love Joseph Smith and he's your prophet. I honor you and I love you. Um, I just want you to understand that's as an outsider, how I see it.
1: Right. So as I'm understanding to put the fine point on it, which I don't think you did out of courtesy that you feel that Joseph Smith in, well, 14 years, let's just say 14 years, it might've started a little bit earlier, definitely ended in 1844, but that he went through a very compressed time period where he started out in a, an acceptable way to you, as far as the teachings in the Book of Mormon, and then rapidly became full of himself and then fell.
0: So I think in 1820, Joseph Smith had a born again experience. So I believe Joseph Smith is born again Christian.
1: Okay, so we'll make it 24 years instead of 14.
0: Yeah, yeah. so I think that's, that's what we're looking at. And I can tell you that Joseph Smith is a human being just like all of us. RFM, how, how do you think you would handle the power, the prestige and all that Joseph was able to accumulate in a relatively short period of time? D- dirt poor farm boy mm-hmm. becomes the leader of an army and a city builder. What would that do to you?
1: Well, I'm by nature, very humble. (laughs) So I, I don't know. I do know that uh, I tend to eschew those kinds of trappings. Okay, good. So that's just my, my personality. Obviously different people are different. And maybe if I were in that exact same position, I would react differently. I think sometimes we think that we would react one way in a given situation. And then that situation happens and we find ourselves acting a different way. But um, no, I'm, I'm, more, I'm kind of retiring and shy. And I'm actually smiling as I say that because I know that that conflicts with what a lot of other people would think about me. Mm-hmm. But I am kind of shy and have to force myself out of my, my, um, my shyness. Um, so I don't know that I would react the same way, but I can certainly understand why it would affect uh, somebody like Joseph Smith that way.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah. And I, I I tell people, I say, I see a lot of parallels between me and Joseph. So I find him to be relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why, like, I, even as a young kid, I found Joseph relatable. I, I remember even thinking at the time, like as a young kid thinking, we need another Bible because the Bible we got now ain't working anymore. And then I hear about this other young farm boy that encounters another scripture. Well, that just, that speaks to me man so that's why i always had this affinity with joseph since a very young age and so i look at it and say i don't know how i would have handled it mm-hmm. if all that was thrust upon me i can see how i could easily um follow the same path in many ways
1: well just wait till your, your podcast becomes more popular
0: <laughs> oh lord keep me humble and i tell i tell people to uh, said you know the Lord, I believe the Lord is involved in this. And I tell people six months from now, I may not be doing this, but I feel the Lord's hand is in this. And I'm, I just, I, but yeah, if I get, because I used to be involved in politics and I had quite the ego, mm-hmm. but I went, I had a couple of nervous breakdowns, suffered severe depression. I tell people God deconstructed me and I've come out of this whole process as a, as a new creature um, but yeah, I just, I just feel like I think another version of me could have gone in a different direction. So I'm just grateful that I'm, I'm alive, actually. Most people say it's amazing that I'm even alive. So <laughs> I'm just grateful to God for that. But um,
1: one thing about Joseph Smith and me, and I'll give you this example, is that he seems to have gotten to a point where he felt little to no compunction about exercising unrighteous dominion over other people and pressuring them. To do what he wanted them to do in my situation i try and avoid that as much as i possibly can and here's the example i'm back from my mission i'm in my 20s i'm teaching at a dance studio so this is probably 1984 or so teaching a jazz class to adults and there is one gal in this dance class whose name is Lori, and i felt that I should approach her about the gospel and the missionary discussions. Just one of these impressions, right? So, but I also knew, Steve, that it would be inappropriate for me as a teacher of a student to approach them about something like this. Now this may be hyper scrupulous on my part because this is just a stupid dance class. This isn't a college course or anything where uh, this Lori is depending upon me for her grade or any kind of pressure like that. This is just a dance class. There's no grade. They're paying to be there. We're having fun. But I still felt that way. And so I decided that if I were going to do this, because I felt very much directed by the spirit toward Lori, I thought, okay, well, we're having the final show at this theater in Austin and as of the time the show is over I'm not her teacher anymore but she's also going to go her own way and I I will lose contact with her I expect of course I never thought about asking her for a phone number but anyway so I waited till that night show's over we're in the wings people are packing up and then I approach her and I say Lori um, I just want to tell you that you know I'm a Mormon yeah and I I felt impressed to ask you to take the missionary discussions, learn more about the church. And she says, okay. And I felt that that was okay. Cause then I was honoring what I felt was this inspiration to ask her to listen to the missionary discussions, but also not crossing a boundary of doing that when I'm her teacher. And that is such a small thing compared to certain stories about Joseph Smith. And the immense pressure he put on people when he's the religious leader of the community. And so I think that if I'm in that position as a religious leader of a community, I am going to work three times as hard not to put pressure on anybody to do anything that I want them to do, but to really teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. I know that's an expression that's put into the mouth of Joseph Smith, whether he said it or not, I think there's lots of instances in his life where he did not wreck his own reed.
0: Mm. Mm. You know, I I have to say too, you know, this is not just something it's just within Mormonism. I'd say almost, I've run into so many pastors throughout the years that don't take the position that you take. Uh, They are very forceful and they're used to being, getting their way and kind of have the attitude, do you know who I am? kind of attitude. So this is, this is endemic to a lot of people who hold positions of authority in spiritual, in the spiritual areas, but of course we see this with CEOs and it's, 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 you know, we see that in the political realm, it's, it's people who want to have positions of power, often are this way and that's in some sense how they got there too. So I, I recognize that as well. So. Yeah, so that this is the thing, like this channel is not about bashing the church or, or, or Joseph or anything like that. But I also want to say that, you know, there are times when I'm, criticisms will be offered, but I do it in love and I appreciate RFM. You giving me your, your views because I think it's really important that people hear all the perspectives uh, and all the dynamics of how one can look at Joseph and the restoration.
1: Well, this is one thing that sometimes people don't believe me, I think, when I tell them that I'm not here trying to get people to leave the church, right? Because I'm not. If the church makes you happy, I mean, it made me happy for a few years. I stayed in like three and a half decades longer than it made me happy. Hmm. All right. But uh, so and I know it makes some people happy. If it makes you happy, that's great. If some other religion makes you happy, that's great. I'm not here to try and dislodge you from whatever it is that you believe. But I am here as someone who will talk about things in as fair and open and as honest a way as I possibly can. So if someone wants to listen to that, if they're in a place where they're ready to hear that kind of thing, then there's the Radio Free Mormon podcast and also Mormonism Live on Wednesday evenings. But just tying that together with my story about Lori... And about the idea of me not trying to get people to leave the LDS church. I would never presume that it would strike me as a presumption of monumental proportions for me to try and tell somebody how they should live their life or what it is that they should believe. No, that's not for me to do. Not in my book.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time uh i want to uh so i so if you have to go or we you know just let me know but i i want you to maybe tell the audience a little bit about what got you into the idea of doing a podcast so just kind of talk about the origin of radio free mormon i
1: will do that i've done that recently but i'll i'll be happy to give it yeah, just give us a cliff here. notes
0: even yeah mm-hmm.
1: I ended up finding my voice when I was writing a blog at Rational Faiths. I had spent decades in the church studying and learning and finding out that really the church only wanted me to teach from the manual and not to teach anything beyond the manual. I can't tell you how many times I've been taken aside after a lesson by someone in authority to talk to me and say, hey, you know, you really need to stick to the manual because we're getting complaints right? So that happens all the time. So I have a voice that keeps getting squelched. I think I was able to exercise my voice much more during the four years that I was teaching gospel doctrine class from 2006 to 2010. And I never used my voice in that role as trying to hurt anybody's faith. I was trying to hopefully expand their knowledge and information base teach them how to read scriptures for meaning, as opposed to reading them for the correlated answers. And also maybe putting certain things in historical context in order to add that kind of insight that comes to scriptures from historical context. So that's what I was trying to do. And I think I did it okay, but ultimately that was done. I got blacklisted in a star chamber. Okay, let me tell you the story about how I got blacklisted in the star chamber. You got a few minutes? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so here's the thing. So I'm done it 2010. I'm released from the calling. I'm thinking, wow, that's four years. That's all the way through the cycle of all four standard works. That's more than most teachers get. And I was thinking before I go back into starting the cycle over, I get released at about that time. And I thought, well, I've said pretty much everything I have to say. So I'm fine with being released. But then the strange thing starts happening, which is first off that my family is attending a ward that's outside of our ward boundaries. And that was because of social conflicts that my second wife had with another family that was in our ward and so this had to be put up through the state president had to go up to the first presidency Hmm. can you imagine wow isn't that crazy first presidency has to sign off on something saying okay it's okay for these people who are like a hundred yards from the boundary line of the ward to go to this ward because they're having i mean real trouble with this other family so that's fine we're in this other ward we don't meet with this other family this is where i'm teaching okay So at the end of 2010, I had also been serving, in addition to doing the gospel doctrine class, I'd also been serving as the secretary of the high priest group, which is like a nothing calling as far as time commitment goes. There's a meeting a week. I do the minutes. I put an agenda together, email it out to the different members. I pride myself that I was actually a pretty darn good secretary for what secretaries do. But 2010 is over. And now there's a special meeting. I'm fine with being released, but now the bishop has to come up with a story about why it was I was released. And the story is that because I am attending a ward that I don't live in, that I can have only one calling. Okay. Yeah. I like what you did with your eyes. That's what I was thinking too when I heard it. I thought... I never heard that before. I don't know why that would make any sense. But that was the story. And that the bishop had met with the high priest group leader. And they had decided that between the two callings, since I have to drop one, I've already been attending this ward for years now before they realized this rule was effective, um, that it was more important for me and for the ward for me to be the high priest group secretary than it was for me to be the Sunday school teacher. And like I said, being released is fine after four years, but now I'm starting to hear these weird stories to justify it. And I thought, hmm, okay, well, I'm not sure I'm buying that, but that's okay. I'll just go ahead and be the the secretary for the high priest group. Now, 2010, it gets better. You ready? Mm -hmm. I have a good friend whose name is Daryl Adair. And it's okay for me to use his name, and if it's not, then he can write me an angry letter. But I'm pretty sure it's okay. He's somewhat older than I am, but uh, we had a relationship that was good. He was also somewhat nuanced as a member of the church, like I am. I think he was a good teacher. I like to think that I was, but he became the next gospel doctrine teacher. So Daryl Adair is up there. I'm fine attending and listening to what he has to say about the scriptures. It's of some interest. I'm learning some things. I like his perspectives. And there are times when Daryl is out of town on business. And the first time he was out of town was just like within the month after he got called. And he calls me up and says, hey, RFM, will you take over my class and be the substitute? I said, sure. So I'm a substitute for the class within a month of being released. That was the one time that he asked me to be the substitute. And then after that, a couple years go by, he continues to leave town on business with some regularity, but he never asks me again to be the substitute teacher. Instead, there are other people that he's asking. And I'm wondering why it is he's not asking me at the same time as thinking, well, it's his class and, you know, he can ask whoever he wants to be the substitute and, it's not really for me to say, and I didn't even bring it up to him because it's his, it's his call. Right? So, but that thought had been in my mind, just kind of wondering. So Daryl, I'm his home teacher as well. He uh, has heart surgery. So this is probably around 2012 and he's down in the hospital and it's a nice, beautiful Sunday afternoon. And I drive down uh, half an hour to the hospital where he's recuperating from heart surgery. And I go in, I say, hi, we talk about this and that, he's doing okay, still around, thank goodness, he's a great guy. And uh, I talked to him just a few days ago. But toward the end of our meeting in the hospital room, Daryl, who's lying there on his bed in his gown and with the sheets up, says, "Um, RFM, I think I should tell you something. And I said, what? And he says, well, you've probably noticed how I haven't been asking you to be the substitute teacher in the Sunday school class. And I said, well, yeah, I've noticed, but, you know, I mean, it's no big deal. It's okay with me, it's your your class. And he says, well, I want to tell you why that is. And so Daryl proceeds to tell me. Oh, I've got to back up. I gotta back up here for just a second to say something that every Mormon knows. Okay. All right. And what every Mormon knows is that pretty much everybody in the church has a calling. And a lot of those callings are teaching callings. And a lot of those are every Sunday callings. And there are times when a teacher or somebody is going to be gone for the week. And somebody else has to substitute. Well, the mandate since time immemorial in the LDS church has been: if you're going to be gone you need to find somebody to take your spot. You don't farm it up and say, hey, I'm gonna be gone, you need to find somebody else. I'm gonna be gone, you find somebody else. That's considered to be proper etiquette in the LDS church. So it's a responsibility of the teacher to find someone else to fill their spot. All right, having said that, now Daryl tells me that the Sunday school president in the ward had circulated a list among the different teachers. And the list was not of people in the ward who were not to be asked to substitute. Oh, no, no, this is much more clever than that, Steve. This was a list of people in the ward who were acceptable to ask to substitute in your class. And I I didn't make the cut, Steve. (laughs) I wasn't on the list. And so I'm kind of surprised he took that long to tell me, but I I don't know, maybe felt a little bit abashed about it. But he finally told me, he might've thought he was on his deathbed, time to make confession, it's driving time. So he tells me about that and I go, really? And I kind of get a little bit upset about that because I know the Sunday school president in the ward and we'd known each other for years and I kind of stopped talking to him I didn't really talk to him that much except at church giving him the cold shoulder and I remember walking into the chapel one day and he's out there in front of the chapel doors handing out the programs and greeting people I kind of brush by and he stops me he says RFM Maybe it's just me, but it seems like you've been kind of cold to me lately. And the first thing I said was, oh, no, not at all, right? But then I stopped and I said, no, you know, actually, I have been because, no, he said, are you angry with me? I said, yeah, actually, I am. I'm angry with you. Why are you angry with me? Well, this is what Daryl told me about this list that you came up with of acceptable substitutes. And I'm not on it. And he goes, oh, oh, well, no, that wasn't me. I didn't come up with that list. That was the bishop. So all of this just to keep me not only from teaching as a calling, but God forbid, I should even be asked to be a substitute teacher when somebody else is out of town. That's how marginalized I'm going to be in my own ward. Wow and shut down, not interested in my voice. You asked about voice a long time ago. I started comparing it with the church where my voice was taken away from me. And then I found my voice again, blogging at Rational Face, right? Around, starting right around that same time, I think. Finding my voice and then wanting to go into podcasting, not knowing how to do it. And then Bill Real approaches me after he reads one of my blogs and says, come on my show. Let's talk about this blog you wrote. The blog I wrote was about the Adam-God theory hmm. and how the church covers it up and continues to try and cover it up to this day. So we went on. This, was, this had been a passion of mine back in the late 80s, early 90s. And I had read a lot of stuff and I had written a manuscript about the Adam-God theory, which has never been published. Hmm. Um, it's been rejected by some of the finest publishing houses in Utah though. So, so I know something about the subject. And I go on his show. I go on Bill Riddle's show in August, I think, of 2016. Okay. And it was just really, really popular. People loved it. Mm -hmm. And so Bill reaches out to me, says, hey, would you like to do a podcast under the Mormon Discussions umbrella? And I said, yes, yes, I would. So we do that. He teaches me how. He was very gracious. And I think that had he had anybody else under his umbrella before i can't remember if i was the first there's there's different podcasts who have come and gone and some who have come and stayed like marriage on a tightrope and uh there's just all these uh different wonderful podcasts that he has but uh, regardless of whether i was the first i was probably one of the first at a minimum and that was something that worked out for him because he was bearing like you this entire brunt of putting out all these podcasts without really anybody else to relieve some of the pressure or the strain or make a podcast over here under his umbrella so he can have a breather. And um, I think it was very beneficial for him. I I think it was somewhat beneficial for him. I know it was hugely beneficial for me Mm -hmm. because here's a podcast and he already has an audience. He has an established audience which means that if I go in under his platform, then I pretty much have his audience as well Mm -hmm. from the get go. I don't have to build it from the ground up. Yep. So that was wonderful. And we're still together to this day. It's a match made in heaven. And I really, really appreciate bill real very, very much. I I think we're very good friends.
0: It was really cool that he did that took you under his wing like that, because I know what it's like to start a podcast from scratch and it, it, it took months for me to get 100 subscribers and people don't realize how, how, how much work it goes into building up an audience and so i actually had a similar idea i've actually approached a couple i'm going to actually launch a, a second podcast i'm gonna nathan smith who was a, a former apologist for fair mormon um uh, he's a good friend of mine and he, uh, he 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 experienced ptsd on the mission field And, uh, we're going to, I'm going to be launching him sometime in the summer. Um, he's now since become a Buddhist, but, uh, interesting dude, had him on my program a few times. And I, I just told him, I said, you know what, I start you off and you get a couple hundred subscribers. I said, that's a lot of people to start off with. You know, if you get two, 300 subscribers right off the bat, and that's what I hope to do. So I think it's really cool that Bill's doing that. So I'm just announcing for the first time that Nathan Smith will be having a podcast this uh, summer, folks. So watch out for that. Um, so let me ask you what, um, How would you say doing the podcast, just have you, what kind of things, because like one of the things that's really interesting to me is the feedback I get from people. Um, People tell me their lives have been changed or they cried when they heard this podcast and it really, really touches me. What kind of feedback do you get with your podcast?
1: Mostly the people go to sleep when they're listening to my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I do get some of those. I have, I remember one individual who was saying, uh would you please stop having that abrupt loud music at the end of your podcast because by that time I have fallen asleep and it awakens me quite violently (laughs) and uh so uh that was one person but uh no it is very you know I've got to tell you um that the first time I became aware of the influence that I was having when it really sunk home. I apologize for this, but um, was in 2019 at Sunstone. That was the first time I'd ever been to Sunstone. Uh, Lindsey Hansen Park was kind enough to reach out to me and ask me if I would present something because I'd never thought of you know even applying before. But uh, so I'm going to Sunstone. Everything else before then has been, you know I'm in my underground bunker. I don't have a lot of contact really with people. Um, And I really wasn't even on Facebook, I don't think at the time. So I'm very, very limited in my understanding of what's going on out there as a result of my podcast. But I get there, I do this uh, funny presentation uh, behind the the sheet. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, that was back when people didn't even know my face. There was no face, there was no name. So I'm behind the sheet, and but um, there was a reveal at the end of my face, though so not my name. But the thing was this, was that I got done talking and then there was a period for questions and person after person in this crowded room came forward and I can't even see them because I'm behind the sheet, right? They can't see me, I can't see them. But they come forward and they're taking the microphone and they're starting to talk about How important I've been to their journey. How important I've been to their life. And I'm back there behind the sheet. And it's a good thing they couldn't see me because I'm just dumb. I'm dumbstruck. Thunderstruck is probably the better word. I can't believe this. It was a surreal experience for me. These people really were that influenced by my podcast. And. So it was a very, very touching experience for me. And then since then, I've been on Facebook. I have better communication with my listeners now. And I get out more, thank goodness, out of the bunker from time to time. Excuse me, go to Utah. And yeah, time after time after time, person after person after person wants to let me know how much what I've said has helped them. And I really think that most of that is because sometimes what I'm saying are things that a person has already come to the point in their life of understanding or being on the cusp of understanding and yet hasn't been able to put it into words or make it gel enough to be a solid idea instead of more an amorphous Uncomfortable feeling. And so then when I say it, it's like, oh, that's what I'm feeling. That's what I've been thinking. And I didn't even know I was thinking it. Mm. So, having said all that, let me tell you this one great story. Um, uh, this fellow messages me a couple of years ago. And this is a story about how I saved his life. Mm. And I'm going. Are you kidding me? Come on, I saved your life. He says, "Yeah. Here's what happens: is that he had bad stuff going on in his family, and he was quite depressed because things weren't going well in his family, and he was thinking maybe life isn't worth living." He walked down to the river, sat on a bench, had his uh, iPhone plugged in, listening looking at the river, the river's looking more and more inviting. And then my podcast comes on and I don't know what podcast it was, but he's listening a little bit and then I crack some kind of a joke and he chuckles Hmm. and he continues listening and I make some other kind of funny quip and he starts laughing. And within 15 to 20 minutes, He's feeling better about himself, feeling more hopeful about his life, feeling like he can laugh at what I'm saying. Mm. And he walks away from the river. And he's the one who gave me credit. He's the one who said that I saved his life. So that's pretty incredible. And that's pretty heady stuff. But... I'm very humbled by it and very grateful. I mean, if I can say something in a podcast that's going to help someone's life and even save it, then I don't know how I... I don't know how I stop doing that. Yeah. Did that part make sense?
0: It makes, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, that's that's the thing that's so striking to me, dude, is, you know, I, right now I get about a 1,000 downloads, views a day. Right now there's somebody watching something and they're crying or they're or, or and, and I recognize that because I get emails all the time from people, like the Don Bradley interview where he talks about his faith journey. I love and, Don Bradley. Yeah, Don's a great guy. And and he wanted to come on my channel specifically to tell his faith journey, which I was honored by that. And and then people uh, just and then then when my the fifth because I did five interviews with on Mormon Stories, before the fifth episode was done, my phone starts exploding because people were so touched by my story, because I have quite a pretty emotionally uh, emotional story, and I saved the impact till the very last episode, and, and then people reached out to me throughout the world. I'm having breakfast the next morning with somebody from at Cracker Barrel, who drove two hours from Fort Myers, Florida. He said, I gotta meet you. We gotta meet now. And he's a father of six, and he just, he's been out of the church for a few years now, and he's divorced, and, his, and he, he's just He's still devastated by the whole thing, but it just literally, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted by it. You know, every time I, my phone dings, it's somebody telling me something. And and that to me is like why I think I will be doing this for a while, because it's not a job. I love it. It's fun. But then when you just kind of just saying something and you're not even thinking the impact it will have on people. And, and that's that's the most amazing thing to me. I hate talking too much about myself, but I, I just want to say I definitely is a very, similar um, thoughts on that, that you have as well.
1: Yeah, and that's really what brought it home to me was last November when I was at Thrive. Uh-huh. And I've told this story before, but I present for 15 minutes. I'm the first presenter in the morning at Thrive. And there's this massive room. It's in downtown Salt Lake City. It was at the Salt Palace. Massive room, 1300 people present. I do my 15 minutes, leave the room to go take care of some things, and I start coming back in to join everybody else to watch the other presenters throughout the day. I never make it past the lobby. I cannot get back into the room because people for, well, people, listeners keep wanting to talk to me and meet me and tell me how much my podcast has meant to them. And I'm not going to break away from them and say, oh, hey, look, I need to get inside there and listen to some other presenter. I am there in the lobby for the entire day until six o'clock PM and people are leaving. The thing about that is not to say that I'm wonderful. The thing about that is to say that it came home to me what an impact my program has on so many people. And I had been up to that time cutting back on Radio Free Mormon because I didn't have time to do that in addition to the weekly Mormonism live program with Bill Reel. On top of which is I've got a full-time job representing people, representing clients who are charged with crimes. All of them unjustly charged, by the way.
0: Of course, of course
1: so uh and then it really occurs to me this would be an insight okay which is i really need to stop being a full-time lawyer and try and be more of a full-time podcaster because even though in representing people I can make a difference in their lives and sometimes a wonderful difference (laughs) in their lives. sometimes not so good. It depends on how the cards fall. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I compare that with the influence I'm having spending my time podcasting, there's really no comparison. So I was talking with Bill and just talking about finances because that's what it came down to. If we can get to the point where I'm making enough with donations to be able to back off, and then completely stop my legal practice, then that's where I want to go. That's where I feel called to go. Mm -hmm. And so now that's starting to formulate into I am winnowing back, not accepting new clients. Every now and then, I'll accept one. But uh, I'm stopping accepting new clients as a general rule with the goal that by the end of this year, 2022, I'll be done representing people. Because representing people is a long thing, you understand. It's not like you bring your car in and we'll work on it for a day or two and then it's out the window. These are months and months once I sign on to represent someone. So the idea then is to be done with that by the end of the year, be complete podcasting and move to Utah. Okay. That's the plan right now.
0: That's awesome. You know, I told people, I said, I think a year from now, I could very well be in Utah. So maybe we'll be uh, neighbors, or roommates, roomies.
1: Oh, joy. Oh, rapture. This is, uh... <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. At least we can cut, cut expenses right. You seem like a very, very nice individual. I'm sure you, know, you have no annoying quirks or habits that would drive me crazy. None whatsoever. Can two divorced men live together without driving each other crazy.
0: (laughs) Odd couple of reference folks for those younger generation. Thank you. Are you divorced? Actually, uh, I am single. Does that mean you've never been married? Never been married. You're going to have to watch the the final episode of the Mormon Stories. Watch the first hour at least. And then then you'll hear my life story. I don't like talking too much about it.
1: You're a wise man. Okay. I, I watched the first one just so you know. Mm-hmm. I watched the first one yeah. and then the second one was going to be about how Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon yeah right mm-hmm. And then there's the third one there's five holy crap
0: yeah
1: i I have not listened to more than I thought I
0: hadn't listened to yeah so I, and, and you know honestly I don't want to – this is not about me and, and promoting myself or anything like that but no it was it was a really cool experience uh, two days, five episodes, probably about 11 or 12 hours um the how how the Book of Mormon um was made one is, is got over I think 30 something thousand views. Uh so that one's really taken off. But but yeah, um yeah, either way, yeah. So watch 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 the part five, the first hour. If you just watch that, then you'll get the gist of my story. Because I, I just I don't really like talking about my personal life to be honest with you. But yeah, yeah we'll make it you. a year from now. How's that sound? Okay. Sounds good.
1: Next year in Jerusalem. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Was there anything else? I mean, you're respectful well, of my time, and that's fine. Was okay. there anything else you want to ask me, or had we gotten to the end of that subject
0: even? Uh, so, I think there's a few things I'd like to toss at you. Um, so, you think by the end of this year you'll be full time podcaster? That that's in the cards. That's very interesting to me. That's my goal. That's your goal. Good. And then um, I guess I wanted just to ask you a little bit about um, last fall kind of had a convergence of my world, the evangelical, or some would say maybe Sean McCraney is, is, a, is a heretic, but just Sean McCraney hosted in his studio slash church, a uh, kind of a debate with RFM versus the Midnight Mormons. I just kind of want to get your feedback on that whole thing. And why weren't uh, you wearing a bulletproof vest? Oh, that's the other thing too.
1: Because I was almost gonna say because I have my garments on but I wasn't because I didn't have my garments on, but I expect they had their garments on, which would seem to make the bulletproof vests superfluous. Wouldn't you think? No, what my thoughts were was that this is something that I had angled for uh, for uh, a number of months. And these uh, gentlemen, um, many people were telling me that they were gonna back out, that they would not show up. And so what I tried to do on my Facebook page, I used it in a way to lock them in to a commitment from which they could not back out. And I even had a bet with an individual. This is Randy, Randy Bell. I had a bet with him before the debate that they would show up because he's saying they're not going to show up. They're Hmm. not going to show up for this. And I said, well, I'll bet you. He says, how much? hundred bucks? done so of course they showed up because they had to they could not not show up by the time I had this thing all set up because if they had they would have never been able to show their face in Utah again so they showed up to their credit and we had a debate I came there to debate Mormonism and I'm not sure what they came there to debate it didn't seem to be about Mormonism Um, and I talked with John DeLynn about this and about how it was that I felt like I did a really bad job and only over a lot of time have I thought that I did a good job in the debate. There are things that I didn't say that I could have said. There are things that I did say that maybe I shouldn't have said, but as my friend Carrie Schertz helped me to understand, that's what a debate is. You're never gonna have a perfect debate. You're always gonna have things that you could have done better or things that maybe you shouldn't have said. But overall, he convinced me that I did a relatively good job. So having said that, in retrospect, my feeling is that they did so poorly that I could have won the debate without opening my mouth. They were the ones busy digging the holes for themselves. In the way they presented. So, that's what I think about the debate. Was there anything more specific?
0: No, I just thought, I just wanted to get your perspective and hear what you had to say because I thought they were, the big mistake they made was they decided to make it, they were like being cultural warriors almost like they were, yes. and it was it made made it political and just. I don't know. I I, just so you know, folks, I, Brad Whitbeck of Midnight Mormons, we've been in contact and he will be coming on sometime soon. He just had a birth in his family a few months ago. And yeah, he just called me a
1: bully. He called you a bully. He called me a schoolyard bully.
0: Okay. Well I'll ask him about that when he comes on. (laughs) If you go to my Facebook page
1: and you'll find uh, a few days ago, maybe last week I put a link up to a Midnight Mormons Uh podcast it has an image of Quaku is the one that comes up in okay. the studio. And underneath it, I give a timestamp. It's just a minute and 15 seconds. Okay. And this is where they talk about me and how uh, Cardin is saying that no other um, anti-Mormons. I don't consider myself an anti-Mormon. I consider myself a true Mormon. Mm not an anti Mormon. I did a whole podcast about that. I'll try not to get lost on that tangent. But Carden is talking about how uh, everybody else is a coward, except for RFM, he says. And this is Carden saying this. Hmm. I thought it was so funny. I wouldn't have put it up on my web page or my Facebook page only for that. But then Brad Whitbeck chimes in and goes, he's a bully. He's just a schoolyard bully. And I thought it was so funny to have Brad Whitbeck saying that because usually he's the more the nicer one Mm -hmm. um, the more peter priesthood one Mm -hmm. and i don't know he's getting this huge beard for some kind of film role that he has and i don't know if that's like adding to his testosterone or his perceived sense of manliness so that now he can express his true feelings about me that i'm a bully so i put that up there because i thought that was fun i thought my audience would like it and they did but uh, yeah, ask Brad Whitbeck about uh, about me and being a bully.
0: Okay, I will. I will. Like I said, I'm talking to everybody, folks. Um, really enjoying this, dude. And I just want to ask you. So, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show today, RFM. Um, like I said, you're about the only podcast I actually listened to, and uh, I really enjoy your work. Um, it's been very in- instructive and informative to me. I okay, which my podcast? Which of my
1: podcasts? Made the biggest impression.
0: Well, I think the one that really, kind of, really uh, emotionally, really affected me was you telling your story about how you, uh, you were uh, molested as a young boy. Um, that one, that was a, that was a very impactful one. I also remember you talking Is there any about. Reese?
1: Is there any reason that you found that one particularly impactful? Well, because
0: I think it's just you are being very open and vulnerable about something that happened to you. But the way you told the story too was just, it was just the way you told the story was, it was very vivid. You know, um, it's like when you tell stories, it's like I can, it's like you can see it happening. I mean, you're you're just a good storyteller. And so I just remember just a lot of the imagery, like even how you describe the apartment building and the layout and Mm -hmm. just all these kind of things, which I found to be very interesting to me. I also when you brought up earlier i'd kind of forgotten about it but but you talked about your time in japan where you where you had uh, felt impressed to tell somebody about the gospel i remember i remember that story then as you were like oh that's right i thought that was an interesting story too so yeah that's two that come off top of the head top of my head
1: all right well thank you i appreciate your listening
0: yeah yeah and i appreciate you taking your time to come on my program i just want to remind my audience to don't forget to like and subscribe just remember that we are now on PayPal, Patreon, if you wish to uh, support us financially. Uh, Mormonbookreviews.com is now our merch store. So if you want to buy hats, mugs, all that kind of stuff, that's available. Anthony, my producer, just got that set up the other day. So that's really exciting. Uh, don't forget, we're on all the... I think we just got added to Odyssey. That's the latest podcast format that we're on. So we're on about eight or 10 now. And we're getting, uh, I think, close to 10,000 downloads in the last 30 days. So that's very exciting. And I told you earlier, RFM, that... This channel just got its 100,000th view earlier this morning.
1: Bravo, so bravo. Thank you very much,
0: And the channel's really taken off and I just want to tell every one of you, I love you. You're all awesome. I love hearing from you. So remember, Mormon Book Reviews at gmail.com if you wish to contact me. You all have yourself a great day.